Hello, everybody. Welcome to the uh, the Spin Cycle podcast, uh, the podcast talking to the, uh, the the personalities, the groups, and the brands that make the UK and London an incredible place uh, to be a cyclist. Today, we've got uh, two people who NJ and I met at Ruler. Um, tertiary friendships, I would say. We know each other who know each other. Um, we've got uh, Jago and Felix from Angry Pablo. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. Um, so, you know, we typically look to break the podcast into three component parts. So who are you? How'd you get into cycling? You know, tell us about your brand and then the Q&A. So we'll, we'll start with question one. Um, maybe, Jago, we'll start with you. How, how did you get into Tell us a bit about you and how did you get into cycling? Um, so I think I actually started cycling a little bit before I met Felix. I did uh, triathlon growing up, not very seriously, yeah. just like local races and stuff. Um, and then when I started secondary school, I met Felix. And uh, he. I, th I guess he cycled a bit more seriously than I did. And he kind of encouraged me to get involved in track racing, crit racing, and mm. kind of from there, you know, from toe cages to cleats, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I think, I don't think I ever would have cycled, probably, like racing-wise, if I hadn't met Felix, but um, yeah, thanks to him, I did. I tried it. I didn't love it. I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> then from there, I just cycled for fun, really. I, I still race triathlon, but I didn't ever really do much cycling-specific racing myself. Um, I used to go and watch Felix yeah. do that. Was it sort of crit racing? when you were doing it or was it more i guess road on track um so i would say the first racing that i did was on preston park track in brighton which okay. is quite a famous yeah. um track um and i probably raced there from kind of 12 until 14 uh weirdly i never raced felix because he was always an age group above me because his birthday is uh the year before mine uh, um yeah. that's kind of a good thing because he was quite good racing <laughs> up an age group anyway so it wouldn't have mattered mm -hmm. um and i also did a bit of crit racing as well around brighton um so there's some crits in hove park which are i think still going to this day i also nice. did some racing at hillington back in the day um more duathlons i think than bike specific races but yeah that's kind of my background in cycling and then ever since then i've just ridden for fun to be honest um through union stuff Fair. I mean, and Felix, we've, we've done a little bit of reading. Um, I looked you up and found there was a Wikipedia page. So um, I know that, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you're, you're an Olympian yourself? Um, yeah, I'd say half an Olympian, but yeah. I mean, if you're half an Olympian, maybe <laughs> tell us how, we'd love to hear the story. I know you, you came quite accomplished, especially in, in track cycling, right? Yeah, so I spent the last sort of five or six years of my cycling career racing on the track. And that ended, yeah, with me going to the Tokyo Olympics in 2021. Um, didn't have the best performance, hence the half Olympian status. Didn't finish my race, but um, no, it was a really cool experience. Uh, what race were you doing at the Tokyo Olympics, Felix? 
I did the Madison. So the race where you race with your partner and you throw them around the track. The one that looks unbelievably chaotic. Is it chaotic when you're there? Chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> who, who, was your, who was your partner at the Olympics? Uh, a guy called Mark Downey. So he was a few years younger than me, but we yeah. had been racing together for the last year, five, six years. And I actually raced with his older brother when I first started track cycling in like, well, proper track cycling in like 2010. I mean, that's pretty incredible, right? Did How did you, were you cycling in velodrome in, in Brighton then? And then you, you worked your way up. How, how did, how did you go from, you know, starting to, how was the, I don't want to say something weird, like your Olympic journey, but how did you go from riding around on a velodrome as a kind of a youth to then turning up at Tokyo and treading the boards, as they say? It all stems from the same place as Jago, really, from Preston Park. So there's a really, really good youth club there called Preston Park Youth Cycling Club. And um, I got into racing there and then they started organising trips to go to Newport in Wales to do track sessions and try the indoor track. And then quite early on, maybe when I was around 14, 15, I got onto like a British cycling kind of like development program. Mm. And they would very frequently have training camps down in Newport or up in Manchester um, during half term. So I was on the track quite a lot. There was a lot of travel when I was young, mm. up and down the country. Um, and then in when I was a junior, so when I was 17, I started riding for Ireland. So both my parents are from Dublin. Yeah. Oh, cool. And then that, kind of to sped up my progress in cycling in a way because there was a lot less less kind of depth in the irish track cycling squad so even at 16 17 i was able to go to elite competition wow and um yeah started there incredible i mean with that in mind maybe we should talk about angry pablo the brand let's uh, head to a break Welcome back, everyone. So, Felix, how did Angry Pablo start? Um, so, Angry Pablo started in, well, we first had the idea, I would say, April 2020. Um, myself and Jago have always thought about starting a business together, um, yeah. but never really had the time. Um, but I, so I live in Mallorca, and it was just oh. as sort of lockdown was starting out here. And it was a really severe, strict lockdown. So I just essentially had unlimited time. Um, so a quick phone call with Jago, who was also living abroad at the time. Um, and we discussed the idea of starting a cycling brand that offered something a little bit different, a bit less serious, a bit more yeah. inviting to people on the outside of the sport. Um, and that's where it was born. We spent essentially the whole summer researching, talking to different manufacturing facilities and sort of figuring out what we wanted to do um and then we launched in september of that same year nice nice i wouldn't say non-serious brand but as in like mm -hmm. i guess taking i guess the eliteness out of it is that why angry pablo is called angry pablo yeah essentially we wanted a a name that was made people ask questions it was kind <laughs> of it just gives them more relaxed feel the same with the logo it makes people laugh they, yeah. they like talking about it um and it's just very different to what you see i think in the cycling industry up until this point anyway nice nice so, so where where was jago where were you where were you based when this call in the pandemic came yeah so i was living in moscow at the time um 
Okay. I had a very different lockdown experience to Felix. I essentially didn't have a lockdown. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, it's quite weird because I came back to the UK last year and when I've spoken to people about it, I kind of feel a bit left out. I kind of feel like that experience didn't really happen to me. Oh. Um, because, yeah, I was free to move around. Um, yeah, people couldn't really take it. I think people took it seriously for about two days and then everyone was like, ah, I don't think to care obviously people were being careful but it wasn't to the same extent that i saw in other countries i mean so kind of talking through angry pablo um jago uh, obviously we know sustainability is a bit of an issue or not an issue it's something important to you guys as a brand why don't you maybe give us an understanding of you know, where you're positioning yourself within that kind of world sustainability yeah sure so I think that it kind of stems from a change in our consumer behavior. Like we see fast fashion was obviously a massive thing 10 years ago. You know, you're buying cheap clothes. When we were growing up anyway, you know, from places like Top Man and H&M, you'd have them for six months and then you change them, you throw them away. Um, We ourselves have changed how we shop. We like to buy good things. We like to keep them for a long time. We'd rather have, you know, five really good jumpers in our wardrobe that we're going to wear and that we actually really like than having 20. Um, so, yeah, I guess that kind of change in our behavior did play a big role in how we approached our brand. Um, yeah. And I think it was important for us as well to be able to travel to the places that were manufacturing our goods. So, yeah, inevitably, that meant that it was going to be within Europe. Um we also looked into materials quite carefully, um, did a lot of research that summer. One of my best friends is like a consultant within the fashion industry. So I spent a lot of time picking his brains, asking him questions about what materials to look for, mm. what materials to avoid. Yeah. And yeah, we were very careful not to rush things. Um, so I think the collection that we have now, we're, we're quite proud of, um, particularly from like a material materials point of view. Mm-hmm. And also from like a manufacturing point of view, because I think that we wanted things to be transparent. We wanted people to like look at a product online and to know what the materials were, where it was made, you know, without that kind of those gray areas. Sometimes it's quite hard to find out where stuff is made. You have Mm -hmm. to look quite deeply into it. Um, And that was something that we wanted to avoid. And hopefully we have been transparent. Um, we would be happy to answer any questions. We encourage <laughs> about manufacturing processes and things like that. So, mm. so yeah. With I guess with the manufacturing, has there been any other I guess challenges that you weren't expecting? A lot, I would say. <laughs> A lot, yeah. Um, so I think we found out that it's very hard to find a good manufacturer. And it's very hard to find a manufacturer that you can have like a really good open relationship with, um, mm. where you, know, you can pick up the phone and call that person and they'll answer your questions. Um, I would say it took us the best part of two years to find a manufacturer for the site. Wow. Um, so that was something that we're always planning to do, but it kept getting pushed back because you'd be speaking to a manufacturer, then that door would close and then you'd have to start the whole process again. And that was quite frustrating. 
And I think I actually got to the point where we'd almost given up on the cycling kit um, when we stumbled across this factory in Italy and they just ticked all the boxes. They were perfect. They were super happy about us coming out to visit and testing mm. prototypes and that kind of thing. Nice. Um, and the facility uses solar power. Cool. For all its like internal processes. Oh, cool. Which obviously ticked another box for us. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we were very lucky to find them. And Yeah, because when we were at Rula, uh, me and Cam noticed that you had the, is it 80%? Uh, tags yeah. on everything same uh, with renewable energy yeah which is quite i, I guess it was quite a, uh, a unique thing as i can't think of any other i guess clothes brands or even like like any any clothes brands where they talk about the i guess the sustainability and the, the solar panel or renewable energy which is used to create their clothing which i think is quite uh i guess a quite a unique thing and i know that if i was to invest in angry pablo i know that you actually do care about the the world because you've proven it by, I guess it's taken two years to find a factory that suits suits your your needs and the world's needs. Yeah, I think it would have been very easy for us as well to to find a factory in China. Um, yeah, it is. Or in the far east, <laughs> it wouldn't have been difficult for us to do that. But we understood that you know for this to work for us, um, we needed to be in close contact with the factory and you know to have a relationship with them as with anything in the world uh we have i guess lots of clothing brands lots of cycle like bike brands lots of frame brands and in the i guess the the realm of i guess clothing in cycling there's quite a lot of brands how how do you find what challenges does angry pablo have against i guess all like the big cycling brands within the business and then you as a small independent how how do you find that you i guess cut through against everyone else yeah, I would say by offering something different. Um, I think in the world of cycling, in particular, people are incredibly brand loyal. Um, so once you buy into one brand, they they tend to just buy that brand. They don't tend to wear an outfit with lots of different brands. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a Rafa jersey, it's a Rafa pair of bib shorts, it's Rafa socks. Yeah, um, And that, that does make it difficult and that does present challenges. But I think the way that we did it was um, by offering quite a small collection to begin with yeah. and by putting a lot of time and effort into those smaller items like socks. I think a lot of people kind of fell in love with our socks because they did stand out. They were different. They had that face on the back of the cuff. Yeah. Um, and once they've bought into one product, it, it kind of makes it a bit, you know, the transition to buying other products a bit easier and a bit more natural. Um, so I would say that that was one of the ways that we did it was by starting with a very small collection um a collection of products that really did stand out from the crowd um and that's why you saw within that first collection a lot of them did have the face on mm. um and it was very prominent like the underpants yeah. as well um they were very popular at the beginning you know it was a big face on an undervest people liked unzipping their jersey at a cafe stop and showing off the branding which was obviously very good for us mm. i feel that also maybe ties into your point about sustainability right like if it's a really high quality item rather than a you know a, like a faceless massive brand with you know people that are paying 150 160 pounds plus for a jersey that hundred maybe a thousand other people have also bought and that it's like yeah. 
the quality is there. It's one of those ones where it's like if you like you said, if you invest in pieces that you think from a cycling point of view, because cycling is already expensive. If you invest in things and are a company that you believe in, it, it you know, it kind of reinforces the fact that actually I've kind of went outside of that and, and I'm proud to wear something of quality, right? Yeah. And I think it, everything has to start somewhere, right? Mm. You know, someone has to all these brands that we kind of are talking about they all did start off somewhere and they weren't popular in the beginning they they yeah. got popular because they were doing something very well and mm. there's a reason that they're so popular now and we recognize that we need to put a lot of time and effort into the development of our products to make sure that they really do stand up against those brands and also offer price points that we think are fair that, yeah you know we don't want to be taking the mickey with our price points but there is a certain amount of time and resources that goes into developing these products and having them manufactured in the places that they are they can't be incredibly cheap they do have to be at a certain price point yeah. um, but we have tried our best to be very competitive um, you know within the space maybe a, a kind of a, a follow-on question of that is when you're doing your sort of product development you know, what are you drawing on? What's the, the things? Maybe like, I mean, there was a point, and I think you guys have cycled as long as NJ and I have, that cycling apparel was pretty terrible. Do you remember the the quarter zips with really big arms, you know, the boil in the bag? No? Yeah. The bin bag jackets. I mean, what? And we're yeah. very different now, right? But what's i guess what are you guys intending to do with the kit you know where are you drawing inspiration what do you think you do really great what are you looking to do better how how are you kind of designing it from that point of view i i would say that we are drawing a lot of inspiration from functional fashion brands outside of cycling mm. so a lot of what we do is about function as well as you know being a high performance garment so something that can be used in you know a multitude of different situations so like you can see that from our jerseys we design them with this waterproof pouch that they can be folded up into so you've got like this really neat pouch amazing that is great for like packing gravel riding you know if you've got a dirty jersey and you want to chuck it into your bag or your handlebar bag um so yeah i think we are taking a lot of inspiration from outside of cycling from cool functional fashion brands like Arcteryx, Patagonia, brands that we've always liked and admired and we think have a lot to offer to cycling mm. as well. I think that you, it'd be quite easy to make the mistake of just looking inwards for inspiration where I think our approach is very different because we're looking very much outwards. Nice, nice. From uh, I guess, uh, I guess when you're talking about development, how were you, how much what kind of stuff were you doing with like, I guess, kit testing? Was it basically you'd wear them and ride or was it giving them out to your friends to see how they fitted on like different body types? Or was it like a, I guess with the the factory, is it like special, special machines which show how durable they are? Oh, that was, yeah, that was my job. Um, riding it, wearing it in Mallorca. Um, also showing friends and guys that I ride with here mm. and just getting them to try stuff, see what they thought of ideas. Um, and kind of initial, very initial testing was making stuff here at home, trialing, like making yeah. a little waterproof pocket and seeing if a jersey fits in it, for example, how big it needs to be. 
and just seeing if the ideas are going to work before trying to put them into practice with the factory. You don't like the same machine, didn't you? Yeah, I might be pushing it a little bit. <laughs> I, uh, I was able to sew a, squ- a, a square. Um, but no, it's we've just taken a very practical approach to that to that kind of stuff, showing people wearing it, trying to do as much as we can here to see if things are going to work. Mm. Um, and yeah, we've managed to find a good group of people that are kind of honest with us and give us con- constructive sort of feedback. Nice, nice. How would I guess you guys? How would you describe I guess the fit of the jersey? Because it looks like. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem like you only have like I guess one sort of jersey type and one sort of short type. So how would you I guess describe? I love that the fit. Um, I love that, that. I love that you do that. I love that you buying Republo's clothes know what size you are. There isn't a a training, an endurance, a race, a pro race, and then and then a, and then a Galacticos fit. <laughs> Well, hopefully someday there will be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, at the moment, uh, we've gone for a kind of, I'd say it's quite a standard fitting jersey. It is designed to be a performance fit. Um, So we say on the website that if you're looking for a performance fit, then we would uh, recommend sizing down. So we don't have like this traditional kind of Italian sizing where everything comes up tiny. It's actually kind of the opposite where it kind of comes up being one size. Um, I wouldn't say too big. I think that would be misleading, but if you were to take your usual size, then it would be kind of not skin tight kind of race. It's true. It would be a tiny bit more relaxed. Um, But the, the reason we did that was because we did want to offer something for everyone. Um, so if someone was quite a serious cyclist and they did want that kind of performance fit, then they could get that from us. Obviously, we don't have the budget to be spent on kind of wind tunnel testing and that kind of thing, but we are very confident in how our jersey performs, like we've tested it across a range of different conditions in lots of different countries, and I think it it, it stands up, you know, it, it does well. Um, I don't know if Felix has anything to add because obviously he's our pro kit tester. <laughs> I think it was just we had a a really good idea of what we wanted from all of our kit. Mm. Like we've spent obviously the last 15 years riding and I, me, I've worn probably 10, 12 different manufacturers' kit. Every year they've brought out different iterations, different yeah. fits, different shapes, different features. And we just, yeah, knew what we wanted, which made it a lot easier. We were going, kind of going in with this sort of, this is what we want here. It's, it's the same with uh, our, like kind of our origin story with developing the socks. I'd had countless pairs of cycling socks over the years. Yeah. Never thought a pair were as good as they should be. And we knew what we wanted and found the factory and developed them. And I think that's, got us off to a really strong start just because we had a really strong vision of what we wanted. And it was, even if it was something very simple like socks, it, um, we still get comments today on how much people like them. Yeah. And it's yeah. so, it's such a simple thing. They're also unique. They were different to socks of other cycling brands. We had quite literally made them ourselves. What would you, as, as, as you were talking about socks, uh, on a previous episode, 
me uh, i had a rant to cam about getting angry at people who charge 20 pounds for socks over and sometimes and like after like six months they like go a different color uh and i saw that you you guys your socks are under 20 pounds which i'm already i'm a big fan of uh so um uh, as you were saying felix what what about bad socks uh what makes your socks so good is it that they stay up oh yeah uh, is question. it the, the they fabrics? Do stay up. Yeah. that can be confirmed they they do not move once you've once you put them on um but there was certain things from other socks like from another brand which i won't mention i had had brand new socks i'd used them maybe twice yeah. and after the second wash they were kind of like hard you know they kind of oh. lose that kind of elasticity yeah. and kind of um, exactly what, i know exactly what you that mean. softness in the material yeah yeah and obviously living out here in mallorca we wanted i wanted a very breathable sock and other socks that i had were yeah just not performing and again it's something that some simple changes can improve some something so simple so much mm. and it can make such a big difference yeah there's nothing worse than having a really bad pair of socks that are slipping or your feet are getting sweaty or um so yeah it was a it was a nice place to start where 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 you know for the real technical question where on the calf do your socks come up to what is the what is optimum level of sock to calf? Yeah, also length. there's there's no use, there's no UCI bullshit on this podcast either, so they can be as high as you want. <laughs> <laughs> Just below the calf muscle, Ooh. that makes sense. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Seeing as I'm seeing as I'm a track cyclist, my muscles are too big to actually get them over, so that's why. Oh yeah. yeah. We said it to Chris Miller said the same for you, Jago. Yeah. Yeah, Chris Chris Miller was saying that he sprays hairspray on the inside of his aero socks. And and Jay, is this right? That the hairspray adheses to a shaved leg, it keeps the aero sock up, apparently, according to Chris Miller. But I think it's all about the aero sock you buy. The, yeah, that is definitely true. Um, but a few quick brands got on that hype a few years ago, and they started they started selling a sock stick. No, it was like a prick stick, and I guess oh. I don't know what was in it. And you could put it on your leg, and then pull your socks up, and it would hold them. <laughs> but as you said, if you have good socks, you don't need a, a prick stick to hold them up. Yeah. Speaking of speaking of good kit, we won't talk about bad kit because there's enough of that around. But speaking of maybe when you did your product development, it sounds like Angry Pablo. You have the house style, call it. You know what works. You know what you like. You, you've got a great factory. When you, I know you said that you, Felix, you especially, right? You, you had lots of kit from lots of other brands that maybe wasn't what you wanted. Did you look at other brands and say, we like how this fits here? We like the, this design or we like having these pockets? How did you kind of put all of those ideas together and then go to your factory and say, this is what we'd like, and then you're like, "This is it. This works." How? Did, how? What was that process like? It's taking bits and pieces from everywhere. Really, there was no like, "This jersey, we want to mimic this." It was like, "We like the sleeve length on this type of jersey. We like the material on this type of jersey. We like the kind of style of this type of jersey." Um. So yeah, we took obviously inspiration from wearing all those different kits over the years, but it was, there wasn't any um, singular item that was used. It was just bits and pieces from everywhere. 
Was there ever a Frankenstein jersey made with you on your Singer sewing machine where you unpick the seams of a brand? <laughs> you turn up and you're looking James like... has to be careful with this. Yeah, yeah, okay, maybe. Yeah. It's very easy to his employment history to to work out what brands he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I've had lots of kit through the years um, from Felix, from mm. race teams. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, we're, we're speaking about the same brands, I think. Fair. Yeah, confirmed. <laughs> but yeah, we, so, did, we did take lots of cycling jerseys nice. and bib shorts. Talk, talking of bib shorts, <laughs> the, the pocket is there two pockets on the bib shorts? Like, because on the picture on the website, uh, it's kind of got a person's hand behind the pocket, but then there's also like a zip on the back of the bib shorts with a pocket. So is there two pockets or is there one pocket? Two pockets. So we have a, a weather-resistant zip-up pocket and then kind of like a, an extra layer stash pocket where you can slide in a, a waterproof jacket or a gilet. Yeah. Oh, nice. The, the zip pocket was kind of designed um, in case you didn't want to ride with the jersey. So if you're wearing a T-shirt, you would also have a zip pocket um, that you could use. Oh, that's very clever. Yeah, I think I've been on like Instagram too much when you're like, didn't want to ride with it without a jersey on. I was like, oh, these guys. <laughs> but then you said t-shirt and saved it. And I was like, oh. You don't have to wear a t-shirt. Well, <laughs> uh, when it comes to, I guess, the, I guess, design, the colors of your, I guess, your jerseys, they're quite, uh, I guess, minimalist uh, kind of, very clean is there do you think that's kind of gonna be always the angry pablo way or do you think you'll get more into i guess more graphical designs and patterns and whatever whatever floats your boat um no the idea around the minimalist design was it's something that we both like um but also i think it's a design that is a bit more inviting to people that are new to cycling yeah I think if you're first putting on your first Lycra jersey, your first pair of Lycra shorts, you don't really want to be walking around in fluoro yellow, like bringing attention to yourself. You <laughs> wanted to sort of like... <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, it's taking inspiration from outside of cycling. It's looking at what these functional fashion brands are doing. Um, yeah. And that's what we consider cool and bringing a bit of that into cycling. Um, but to answer your question in full, I, I don't think that we would commit ourselves to just doing those kind of minimalist pastel shades for the rest of Angry Pablo's existence. Um, I do think there are other directions we can take it in. That was just what we decided for the first launch. Yeah. Um, because obviously we could only produce so many jerseys and so many pairs of bib shorts, um, et cetera. And we wanted something that would appeal to as many people as possible. What are you, what are you most proud of? This might sound like a very weird question, but <laughs> from starting a brand in the middle of the pandemic, being where you are today, so to go from nothing at the start of pandemic to being an exhibitor at Ruler, being a pretty well-known challenger brand, appearing on potentially the number one underground cycling podcast in the UK, <laughs> what are you most proud of with angry pablo so far I, th I think that's a good question because you know you have as felix i'm sure will confirm you have lots of good and bad days when you're doing something like this when mm. you're you know you start a small business it's not all plain sailing 
there are lots there are as many bad days as there are good days um and like you kind of go through ebbs and flows if you will and something like really cool will happen like someone will wear your brand and you'll see them wearing your brand um and you're like wow like amazing that's incredible um uh, but then you'll have like a couple of bad days and then something else will happen like but i think it'd be really hard to pick out for me a standout moment i think that rouleau would definitely be up there yeah you know when we were there i was kind of looking around at the other exhibitors and thinking wow like yeah there are some really cool brands here like it's it's kind of cool to be recognized amongst like these people mm-hmm. um and yeah you get asked to be at ruler just quickly button in is as in do you apply to be a store or would ruler be like we want you to exhibit at our event or is it a bit of both we they contacted us to be involved but it was holy hell a paid gig so it's it's, it's not <laughs> but we haven't been uh, invited out of the kindness of their hearts i don't think <laughs> but uh, no but i bet you there were a lot of people that wanted to be invited that contacted the sales department of ruler that didn't go guarantee you that yeah i'm sure amazing so i kind of know because we spoke about it but at ruler slightly but i know we spoke about it at uh ruler but uh, what's next for the angry pablo brand we're currently deep into our development of the spring 2024 collections which we're both quite excited about we've um We've learned a lot from our first runs. Mm-hmm. Um, as Jager said, we're really proud of what we've produced, but there's always areas we can improve on and also increasing the ranges. Um, but we're also really excited to continue to develop the Anger Pablo Social Club aspect of things as well. We have a, a run club in Brighton. We've recently started a run club in London and we're hoping to push on with that next year and continue to develop it as much as we can. We hear that there's a run club. Is there going to be a cycle club? Yeah, so we do actually have a cycle club, but the rides are a bit less frequent than our runs. So the runs are every single week mm-hmm. on a set set time, set day. Um, and the rides are, I'd say we try and hold on through the summer once every four or five weeks. And we try to move them around. So they've done some in Sussex. We've done a couple in London. Um, but again, we'd like to develop that next year and do more. So you said about the, the social run clubs, and um, the cycling events how do people get involved with angry pablo what's next for you guys um so yeah so on our website we have a social club section that's dedicated to the run and ride clubs and uh it's very easy to sign up um you just have to sign a waiver and enter your email address um, and then we add you to our community um and in terms of what we've got coming next we've got a casual collection dropping in about 2 weeks 2 or 3 weeks which we're really excited about amazing um and we're going to launch that um exclusively for social club members probably a few days before the general release and so yeah people can sign up to our social club on our website and they can hear about it first sounds great that sounds great uh sort of going back to i guess when cam was asking about success uh this sort of has there been a time where you've just been out and you've just seen in the most randomest of places, just seen an angry Pablo like t-shirt or Jersey yeah. or someone's gone past on the bike and you're like, Oh wow. And it kind of hit you of like, I've made that. That's uh 
That's a really good question. I did. I saw someone on the tube once in London. No. An angry pap. Yeah. And that probably is up there. Um, you know, did, top five moments. Did you have to slightly restrain yourself t- to go over and be like, by the way, yes. uh, company, thanks for buying it. Would you, you know, did, did you want to take a photo? <laughs> like, it must be like so exciting yeah. just to see, but you have to be like skull coughs quietly. Do you want my autograph? Um, yeah, <laughs> but I've also seen, um, I was in Mallorca with Felix once and I think it was a girl that rode past and she was wearing an Angry Pablo net warmer and Felix literally chased her down the road shouting Angry Pablo. <laughs> <laughs> with that in mind, let's head to a break. Welcome back, everybody. Section three, Q&A. This, if you've heard any prior episodes, you know that this is a white bib safe space. You're more than welcome here. Guys, will there ever be, first of all, are you fans of the white bib? Second of all, will there ever be an Angry Pablo white bib? Maybe, Felix, we start with you. Um, I've never personally wore white bibs, <laughs> um, but I wouldn't be against it. Oh, okay. I wouldn't be against it if I was in. I feel like if I was in really good shape, I would be. I would put white bibs on. Oh, mm. you have to have a good. I think you have to have a good tan to go with them as well. Yeah, the contrast. We well, do live in Mallorca, so <laughs> I do. But I do have Irish heritage. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my partner's half Irish and uh, Portuguese, and she got the Irish skin rather than the Portuguese skin, and it is she. When we go on holiday, it's all she ever tells me. She, she's like, the hat on. Uh, we were at the Jira last year and it was, what, 38 degrees in like May. And there I am, just T-shirt, like getting all nice and tan, looking all like, not that I'm Italian in any way, but I'm looking like a local. Uh, and there she is with like <laughs> having to put on like layers of like white, white, uh, white long sleeves on so she doesn't get burnt. Yeah, I'm just going red and freckled. Yeah. It's not really the, the best combination of white bib shorts, maybe. Jago, are you venturing in white bib shorts in uh, sunny Brighton? Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure because, and I'll tell you why. Um, myself and Felix used to ride with a guy in Mallorca a lot who wore the same pair of white bib shorts and they were <laughs> oh. always dirty. Were <laughs> and I find it really hard to look past that. Like <laughs> when I think of white bib shorts, I just think of that man. Um, mm. Hopefully he's not this. Are we, you are we the- talking... Are we saying dirty and it wasn't clean or dirty as in he got some stains on them and they didn't come out? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'd probably say that. Just like he'd ridden them a few too many times. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't a good look, but I'm, I'm convinced that I could pull off a pair of white bib shorts. <laughs> Maybe we need to test this out at some point. So are we is mm-hmm. it, so are we going to... So Angry Pablo white bib shorts, maybe... You know, it'll be. I have to be a spring summer collection. You know, yeah. Or if you're like me, it could be an autumn winter collection because you're bold and you know, true hard men <laughs> ride in the rain. I mean, they're a great indoor pair of shorts as well, aren't they? Oh, like potentially. There's a shout. Mm. It's just scare my wife and ki- scare my wife and daughter instead, <laughs> instead of the general public of Surrey. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> low, low level warfare within the house uh talking of 
kit. Uh, what is your favorite Angry Pablo? I guess kit. It can be cycling and leisure if we want to expand expand through your whole range. My favorite piece of cycling kit from us, I think, has to be our all-purpose yellow. I think it's the most kind of innovative product that we've come up with and it just ticks all the boxes for being versatile being really effective um and looking cool perfect uh how why would you say it is innovative um in i guess when when we think of i guess cycling gilets what does it do that others others don't i think the the mesh back makes a huge difference when you're riding it's really good for regulating temperature and the water resistant pocket or the weather resistant pocket on the back is a bit of a game changer too keeping your phone dry keeping money dry um and the fact that it reverses back into its own pouch if you're traveling with the bike whether you want to keep something clean or keep your dirty gelée away from your clean stuff it's really really handy how how many pockets are we talking on the back we have four pockets actually so three standard pockets and then the middle pocket has a zip up weather resistant outer section that's good that's sick that's good Jago, how about I like you? That. I think on the cycling side of things, I'd, I'd agree. Um, that's probably the piece of kit that comes in most handy as well, isn't it, in the UK, especially in this kind of weather. It's, um, yeah, it's a really versatile, functional piece of kit. Um, so I'd have to agree. We'll, put, we'll make sure we put that in the show notes, I think, a link to that website, make sure yeah. people can get that one. In terms of your, your leisure wear, would it be the, the sweatshirts you're wearing right now? Um, I really like our oversized t-shirts. They're really comfortable and the quality of the material is really, really good. And they have that kind of minimalist design with a small patch on the chest. Nice. Jago? Um, I live in the city, so I, I think it would be rude for me not to say this city in Almond. It has to be Almond, not Grey. Um, <laughs> I'm a big fan of kind of you know like comfy leisure wear that you can kind of wear yeah. all, all occasions um, so yeah I would go with this hoodie sweet sweet um, as we know you you both probably have never r- really ridden in Regents uh, but I know that you have ridden in Richmond but it'd be unfair to ask you which one is more pro so in Brighton Jago, uh, what are your, I guess, favourite rides? Um, where would you see the most pro people be around Brighton? Hmm. Yeah, I guess they probably congregate around. There's a couple of good climbs in Brighton. Um, I know Ditchlin Beacon, for example, it's kind of on the London to Brighton route, isn't it? It's that last. Climb. Oh yeah, me, me and Cam have done that. Uh, Grim. It was. Hi, Ed. Yeah, I didn't properly. Ind- I probably didn't index my gear, so I had to climb up in what. Uh, I think it was a 39, like 25. Might have even been like, I couldn't get to like the granny gear and it was like an excuse. the worst struggle. Yeah, this I've is an excuse. This is, an, this is a massive excuse. <laughs> NJ didn't pack his legs. <laughs> NJ didn't eat. <laughs> he, it, last, I, last time he told me when I was picking, he was, oh, I think the air density was too bad for me. It's just, he just, he's not, he's, it, was, it was hot down there. It was hot. Bullshit. It was hot. It was like, uh, it was April. Uh, it was like the CGC charity ride. And then, at the bottom of Ditson Beacon, it was very hot. I don't know. It was kind of like all right temperature. And then it was just like I overheated. And then it was just like eight minutes of like 
the worst. Just eight minutes of struggle. Um, but I did take some nice pictures of you at the top. Eight uh, minutes uh, is ambitious, up. mate. Anyway. <laughs> um, there's some other good climbs as well around um, kind of closer to where we grew up. Um, Fell Beacon, I'd definitely say, is, is up there in Sussex as one of the best climbs. Nice. Um, is that with views or the gradient that you, you go up? Oh, it's pretty tough gradient-wise, but it's quite a weird one because you, you ride up to the top and then it's just a car park. There's It doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> um, but there are some very nice views from the top. But I think it's used for a lot of like local hill climbs and stuff. So it makes it... It's quite competitive, I think, like Strava leaderboards and stuff. Like, there are some good times up there. Perfect, perfect. So, uh, Felix, you, you live in Mallorca. So I guess... Um, yeah. I guess, where is the most pro place in Mallorca, would you say? Um, I would say there's a climb called Sacalobra, which ah, is really iconic. Um, I don't know if you've ridden up it, but it's you go down to a port and you just have to turn around and come straight back up the road. You've already come down, which is a bit yeah. daunting because you descend for about 20 minutes. Um, but you'll always see pro guys riding up and down there. Um, and I have a good memory because... Um, one of my teammates snapped his gear cable as we were entering the port ah. and he had to ride up the full climb in the 11th rocket, which was quite enjoyable to watch. <laughs> 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 and it's the average gradient of about, I think it's 9%, but there's some really steep sections. Nice. Nice. Is there any other, I guess, less famous climbs that you'd recommend in Mallorca? Um, yeah, there's some really nice, there's a really nice climb out of Palma called Secreo it's um the main climb to get out of the city um but the whole um coastal loop on the west it's all undulating amazing views um and you cross through some really nice towns like Dea and Rach um and then you can descend down into a town called Soya which is also really nice you guys have been riding for a while you've got your own brand you know you've seen a lot you've seen the inside and the outside maybe look what do you what do you dislike about cycling would you say what, what's the kind of one thing that you would you know put in the bin about it um for me i would say how from, from two different points of view so it's got very techy over the last kind of five or six years with power meters and heart rate and garments and times mm -hmm. and from when i was racing it made the level of competition go through the roof like with especially young riders coming through, there was guys that were 16 that had already been training like pros since they were 12 because they had access to this equipment. Um, so that made the level of condition so, so, so high. So it went from, for, for, from us, it was going from being very competitive at the pointy end of like world championship races to yeah. not really being involved, just trying to like hang on to these crazy, crazy guys. But now that I've stopped racing, just the constant chat about power meters is my numbing power numbers all the time group every group ride it's someone talking about ftps or whatever and it's like all right i've had enough of this i've done my time <laughs> jagger how about you what are you what are you what are you binning um, for me i would say what do i dislike about cycling i would say the one thing that I find quite frustrating in cycling is that people who are kind of really into cycling and obsessed with cycling don't kind of understand 
other things outside of cycling if that makes sense like all they think about is cycling and i i think this is what me and felix have in common is that we can appreciate other sports we can appreciate you know people that do other things mm. um and i think uh, cycling just the culture needs to change a little bit like it would be very hard for someone to turn up on a group ride in mallorca for example from a certain clubhouse and feel welcome um and i think i, I don't like that about cycling yeah it's all a bit too consuming yeah yeah i think people take it a bit too seriously um yep. like i could turn up to a clubhouse ride with felix who's you know won multiple world cups on the track and like they would make him feel like he was you know this big yeah you know they it's it's a really weird culture in a lot of ways um but having said that there are also some amazing communities as well which i should point out um and i think it is changing and i think that is good but mm -hmm. i still think there's a long way to go to get less less um elitist and like more of a welcoming kind of inclusive environment for people yeah as you're you call yourself i guess a hybrid cycling club and you have your run club how would you say i guess running and cycling differ in that sense if we're sort of going on the whole like club feel um yeah I'd say, well i think there's less barrier to entry isn't there for running like you can just turn up with a pair of trainers and yeah you feel like you're part of something um, yeah. whereas with cycling obviously there are barriers to entry you need a bike you need certain equipment a lot of these rides kind of dictate that you need cleats for example that's a massive barrier for people haven't yeah. cycled before um so yeah i guess in that respect they are quite different um yeah i also uh, i think interesting like if you speak to a lot of cyclists they will make fun of runners whereas runners probably won't make fun of cyclists um, <laughs> i think that's a weird <laughs> that's a weird thing that exists um, i imagine yeah i think they make fun because they can't do it <laughs> for me like I, I was a triathlete and growing up like cyclists would make fun of triathletes but triathletes would never make fun of cyclists so um i think that yeah says a lot about kind of the kind of mindset within cycling a lot of the time i don't yeah. know if you would agree with me <laughs> no i would yeah. i would he did used to make fun and of being a trap. <laughs> I was going to ask that. Did you I make fun? To, of... I was about to say, no, I didn't. <laughs> Were you trapped fleece no, with your short socks? Um, short socks on no socks triathletes? Uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't do it now, but I, I imagine at the time, yeah, I didn't wear socks. <laughs> so, Brennan, when you told us about your, your great rides, what about coffee shops? Um, Jago, why don't we start with you? See, everybody. A lot of people go to London to Brighton. There's a lot of places where I've been in Brighton mm. that were um, maybe not the best of places because it was the only place we could find that wasn't busy. But how about where would you go for a coffee in that area, or even not Brighton? Maybe the kind of the, the surrounding areas. Yeah, so I think so. We do our social run club in Brighton from a place called Fika, which is. Um, at Sea Lanes, which is this new facility that was opened this summer. And it's basically a 50 meter swimming pool um, right on the seafront. And they've also got a bar. They've got um, a really nice cafe. Um, they've got a bunch of other stuff going on down there. I think they've got like paddle boarding and stuff. Um, 
and the coffee shop there Fika is really great um really good speciality coffee you have like a really nice view you can sit on the terrace and you have a great view of the swimming pool and the sea so i would probably recommend going there if i was in brighton at the end of a long ride fair phoenix what about in mallorca i see there's a lot of coffee places i think some of them i follow on instagram as well but Mm -hmm. if you want to go to a spot that maybe only the local maybe not the locals know but like maybe what what do you think uh, people should really be checking out mallorca rather than the kind of the classic few um so there's a small coffee shop in old town palma called plumo it was set up by a couple of friends um but it's if you're into sort of cycling nostalgia they've got a load of x world tour bikes from i would say the mid 2000s amazing nice so they've got like a wiggins's bike vinegar or falverde and they've got a range of maybe 15 bikes um they're actually available to hire as well so if you want a bit of a unique experience riding out here in mallorca <laughs> you can hire carlos sastre's um Cervelo from when he were i think he won the tour didn't he yeah what 2007 um, yeah Lance yeah. Nemesis. So it's, again <laughs> yeah but they've got again really good coffee really good kind of like quick easy food you know like toast and sort of um those kind of smoothie bowls good smoothies and it's it's a really good um yeah mid-ride or pre-ride or post-ride cafe fair enough i can say that it's a good cafe perfect perfect as we're i guess talking about mountains uh this question you can i guess uh take however you like uh most people go with watching and doing but cobbles or mountains what 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 do you prefer um it's a bit of a double-edged sword for me because i'm not a very good climber and i got dropped at the end of 23 tour of flanders over the cobbles um but i would probably pick mountains now just purely for the enjoyment the views um out here in mallorca yeah, I'd probably go mountains as well, just because I'm more likely to beat Felix on. <laughs> Diego, when was the last time you beat Felix on the bike? Um, oh, not sure that's ever happened. I think, I think technically, there's a few Strava segments that would suggest otherwise, but um, no, <laughs> I would definitely not have ever beaten Felix in a race. I think we're probably in similar shape. What was the under twenty three Ronde van Flanderen like? Under twenty three Tour of Flanders, like mad. So we did a lot of yeah, completely mad. We did a lot of the same course as the pros, is just a bit shorter. Um, but as all under twenty three races are, it was just absolute chaos, um, sprinting into every cobbled climb, um, crashing at the bottom of some cobbled climbs. Um, but yeah, I, I'd never experienced cobbles like it. I thought I'd ridden on proper cobbles and I realized I hadn't. And it's pretty severe. Like people riding through people's front gardens, try, just trying to avoid riding on the cobbles. Oh, wow. It was, uh, yeah, it was mad. I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is actually what they're racing on. It's like watching it on TV does not do it justice. Was it back in the days where everyone was on 23s? Um... Yes, probably. I remember I bought a set of 
remember they had the old green Roubaix tubs? Yes. I don't know what they were. Maybe Vittoria made them. I remember those. And I thought they were really cool. I got a set of them. Yeah, I remember and those. I was like, oh, I'm going to do really well now. I've got a set of green tubs. The Cervelo test team and ran them for it, a while. Yeah, they didn't well. work. Cervelo test team ran them for a while. Yeah, how's it? I was looking for a refund after my blinded experience. <laughs> well, I didn't punch it. I was just not very good. <laughs> Guys, we're at, the, we're at the tail end of the podcast now. Um, thank you an incredible amount for spending this past time with us. Where can people find you? What's in the pipeline? And uh, what's next? So we're available on all good social media platforms i think instagram facebook youtube probably some others um and our online store is angrypablo.cc or if you're listening in the eu we're eu.angrypablo.cc well jaco felix thanks for being on the spin cycle podcast see you soon thanks for having us thank you thanks bye Thank you.